Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. How are you today? Good. Did you know that The Guardian in 2013 wrote an op-ed, and in it, they described Australians as the most unresponsive audience in the world. It was the entertainment reporter. They'd been around to just like theatre performances anyway. And they said, Australians are the most friendliest people. At sport, they go crazy. But put them in a room facing the front, and they just turn into unresponsive mannequins. <laughs> so how are you today? Oh, thank you. I can see you breaking through the cultural uh, strongholds there. I'm good. It's Palm Sunday. Uh, this is the day where we celebrate the entry of Jesus into uh, Jerusalem. You may have memories of Palm Sunday if you grew up in church uh, of being dressed up. I have a memory. It's like really blurry of being in some sort of like replica of a first century citizen's clothes with a, a sheet and maybe a tea towel on my head. And I was waving a palm. That's all I remember. But often on Palm Sundays, we'll focus on these details of the story. But I think there's heaps that this story has to tell us, particularly at this moment. And uh, what I want to do is I want to look at this story in the biggest span of Scripture. I want to do a real deep dive into it. So the best place to begin is let's begin uh, by opening God's Word. And we're going to start with Luke's accounts of this story in Luke 19, verse 45. Sorry, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever read in. Untie it and bring it here. Again, this links to what Lydia mentioned before of the prophecy in Zechariah, a prophet who spoke of the coming of God. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Great thing to say if you're stealing a car, which is the cultural equivalent as what's going on here. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he told them. As they're untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road, a sign of honouring. When he came to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, Even if you had only known this day, if, sorry, even if you, even you had only known on this day what would bring peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. 
The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Let me just say that line again. You did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Then Jesus entered the temple courts and he began to drive out those who were selling. Now, as I said, to understand this story, we need to understand it in the scriptural context that it finds itself in. And if you can imagine a book, a book has covers. And what I want to do is I want to place this story in between the two covers of what marks the beginning of scripture and marks the end of scripture. Where we see this story of from a holy garden to a holy garden city remembering Jerusalem as the holy city. Now, to go back to the beginning of Scripture, we have this account of creation. And after seven days of creation, God fills his creation with his presence. He rests on the seventh day, and God is now dwelling within creation. Now, this filling language and dwelling language is really, really key because this is actually temple language. What is a temple? A temple is a sacred place where priests operate, and God is present. So what it's indicating to us here is there's some kind of temple being made, and that temple is actually the entire world. He fills an initially dark and empty place with his presence presence, and brings new creation, transforming it into his dwelling place. So let's just read this. Genesis 1.8 says this, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A water, so a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. And from there it separated into four headwaters. The the name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. Again, in scripture, you need to note the little details the holiest of holies, the space in the Jerusalem temple in which God's presence dwelt was inlaid with gold. This is a backbeat in this song of scripture, which is telling us again, this temple stuff going on. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon and it winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs through the east side of Ashur, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, if you are following our previous series leading up to this, where we had the different offices that represent the different attributes, not like work of God, priest, prophet, and king, that's also given to humans you'll remember that some of the priestly duties was to work and tend, also a kingly duty. In fact, the word work is actually linked to worship. So here we have God creating a kind of temple, placing a man in it, but the temple is the world, and the priest is the man. So the garden was a holy place, a sacred temple where Adam and Eve in their priestly identity, met with God face to face. God and humanity enjoy each other's presence, humans and God dwelling together. Now, with humans, 
One of the commands that God gave them was to go forth and multiply. The idea here was not just to have the temple, this creation, this this Eden, have a couple of people in it. God commands them to multiply. And if people multiply, the population grows. And you're on a trajectory where this place would have gone from perhaps a garden with a few people in it to a village, to a town, to a city. And what it would have turned into was a garden city. And in that garden city, humans fulfilling the call to cultivate and tend, to have dominion, to take the earth and bring good out of it, would have actually created a culture. And the result would have been a garden city. Now, what we see is the book end of the end of Scripture is a vision. And it's a vision that one of Jesus' disciples who's become an apostle, a sent one, He's imprisoned on an island. He has this vision where God reveals this future time. And in this future time, the image is of descending from the heavens, a garden city, what the scriptures call a new Jerusalem. Let's actually read that account here. In Revelation 21:1, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So these are the bookends. We have to understand the story of what we read on Palm Sundays. Worlds created to be a garden temple that would develop into a garden city where people dwelt with God face to face. And the end point where a garden city comes down from the heavens and humans dwell with God face to face and his presence fills the world. So we have this then series of events. God creates the garden that humans fall. Humans choose to not pick up their priestly identity. Instead, they choose to rule in their own strength. This creates sin, evil, brokenness in the world. And so almost the presence retreats at this point. Humans are always away from it. Humans can't walk with God face to face. There's been a break of relationship. But then we see God not giving up. God begins a plan, a plan of salvation, and his presence begins to return. At first, it's just to individuals. A person like Jacob has this encounter where he sees a a ladder, Abraham. These people have these encounters, and what they tend to do is something very priestly when they encounter God is to build an altar. Often it's just a stone. But it's to mark the memory of where God appeared and his presence came close. And then you see this sort of pulsating revisitations, occasional visitations in the Old Testament. Then the people are commanded to build this tabernacle. Moses is given on the mount these instructions of how to build this almost halfway point, this embassy between heaven and earth where it overlaps. They take this and move it through the wilderness until they get to Jerusalem, which we're going to return to, and a temple is built by Solomon. Then we see Jesus coming in this story. He is, in a way, like a temple. He is the presence of God amongst the people dwelling in a human body. He is acting like a priest. And then we have this moment in the upper room in Pentecost where, again, that temple language filling, the people are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the church goes out. And as the church goes out, people filled with the presence of God go to the ends of the world and God's mission is then accomplished and the new Jerusalem comes from the heavens. That's the trajectory between the covers. That is the grand span. But what I want to do is I want to take this back to a moment earlier because what we have to see is in understanding 
the story of Palm Sunday, we can miss it because we're so attuned to looking at people, looking at individuals, that we often miss some of the big characters that are often in other stories are cities, nations. And so one of the big characters in this story is the city of Jerusalem. Now I want to return to an earlier story which in some ways mirrors the story that we've just read about Palm Sunday. And what's happened in this story is the presence of God has been moving around. One of the places it stays is a place called Shiloh. But the ark is captured by the Philistines and there is sin around it. So what God does is he anoints a new king, a king called David, and David brings the holy things of God, the tabernacle, and he brings it to a particular place, a city which has a destiny. Its name gives that away, Jerusalem. The word Salem comes from the word peace. This is meant to be a holy city of peace. And so David brings the presence of God into this place. Now, this is really key because what you have is, remember we looked at king in our series, king where humans have dominion and rule, and David represents, in a sense, all the humans here as the king, as the representative. And the human throne is right next to God's throne. The dwelling place of the king is right next to God's dwelling place. And what this result of this is, is that David, like so many, unlike so many of the kings who've come before him, is then someone whose, as scriptures say of him, he was a man after God's heart. Was this just because he was extra special? Yeah, there was something special about David. But why his heart was shaped after God's is because he dwelt in close proximity to the presence of God. Being that close, his heart could not be not shaped by God. And so the dwelling place of God is next to the dwelling place of David, representative of humanity. And we see this is now pointing ahead to the time where humans and God will dwell together. God's presence, human presence, face to face. But this model of Jerusalem, which is like a model of what the whole world should be, of God's desire to fill the world with his presence, to live face-to-face with humans, that in the hearts of Jerusalem there's a tension. There's a fissure. There's a seed which is bad. And we see this in the story of when David first brings these things into the holy city, the holy things, the Ark of the Covenant, which is what is in the holiest of holies. The holiest of holies, there's the temple or the tabernacle, and then within the tabernacle, there's another really special zone where like, the presence of God dwelt, and it was called the holiest of holies. And inside of that was the Ark of the Covenant. So in Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 14 to 16, we see the tension that is in the heart of Jerusalem, which will appear in this story, but also appear later in the story of Palm Sunday. Now it says this, David wearing a linen ephod. Do any of you have an ephod? An ephod is not something people wear today, but an ephod is a priestly garment. And this is really key. If you've been following this series, you will see how this is David taking both on king and priest in one moment. 
king and priest. He is wearing a priestly garment. He's going before the presence of God, and he's doing that as king and priest. And when you see those officers coming back together, just as in the way they come together in Jesus, you can see that, hang on, something's happening here. God's moving his purposes forward. So David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might. Have you ever danced with all your might? Some have. I can hear some. Others, like, I'm not so sure. Others, if I did that, I might be arrested for crimes against rhythm. (laughs) But this is quite a statement. It's not just David danced. This is David danced before the Lord. David's dancing in God's presence. Now think about other encounters when like Moses goes before God. Other encounters where actually there's some guys carrying the ark. They touch the ark when they're not meant to. They come into God's presence and they lose their lives. So this is a moment when you really need to come with great reverence. But what is David doing? David is dancing with all his might. Doesn't say he's dancing and David was danced like an angel. Such moves were never seen in the land of Israel. There's actually this sense he's dancing with all his might. It's a different kind of dancing. So it says this, while he and Israel were bringing up the ark with shouts and the sound of trumpets, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David. So what's happening here? What does the ark symbolize? The ark goes in, the holiest of holies, and the ark symbolizes God's presence. This is God's presence returning to Jerusalem. This is a really key moment. God's presence rocking up in, in a sense, the capital of God's people, representative to exist next to the king. Now, what's really interesting is, was David dancing? Because that's just the kind of guy he was. Now, at my year 10 disco, which we had in the lower gym at my school, as you can imagine, when the music first began, there's a lot of teenage self-consciousness. And classically what tended to happen is people just hugged around the walls. So guys on one side, girls on the other, hugging the walls, and there wasn't much dancing happened. Music goes for a few songs. But then one guy, I'm not gonna name him because it's a small world, he doesn't come to this church, but you just never know in these days of podcast and whether he even remembers this, why am I adding these details that it's irrelevant. Anyway, this particular guy, heads, and I clearly remember this, heads out, and a few people sort of started to dance a little bit. They weren't dancing with all their might, they're a little bit restrained, so they were the keen beans. But then this guy just goes in the middle, takes off his jacket, and starts waving it around his head to the point it's almost like whacking people. And this guy literally, I can fully say, danced with all his might because it wasn't good. (laughs) It was not rhythmic, but he put everything he had into it. And after, I don't know how long we were in that room, two hours, he was a sweaty, heaving mess of of a teenage boy. And well, we may have sort of giggled away and laughed at him, but he had the last laugh because he won Best Dancer at the Year 10 Disco. 
Now, that was someone who I just think, he just didn't care. He was a 16-year-old boy. He danced with all his might because that's the kind of guy he was and he took home the prize. But is that the kind of guy David was? Why is David dancing with all his might? Because he loves a good tune? He's just one of those people who worship happens and he's just naturally dancing because that's just how he is? Or is actually he doing something prophetic? Because this is not just a space where everyone's happy that the presence is coming. One of the things you'll see in scripture and in the history of church is that whenever the presence comes, it's often contended. There's a contest. And we read this as we read on, where it says, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. So we have two notes playing in this passage. The first note is played by David, who welcomes the presence with abandon. He's playing his part in partnering with God in his plan to flood the world with his presence. And you know what? I actually think David knows that this is a prophetic act. I think David is doing this to be countercultural. I think David is knowing that there are people who are against him. The house of Saul is still around that there are people who are going to look at him and think this is ridiculous, but he is trying to set a new culture. Israel's culture had been one which continually undermined and backbit and was double-minded, and it continually did that. And I think David is not just dancing with the most amazing moves ever, gifted by the Holy Spirit. I think David is dancing with all his might because he is throwing his entire lot in with what the presence of God is doing. So we have in this moment, yeah, he's got a priestly garment, he's the king, but we have a prophetic action. And like in this moment, those three are coming together. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, listen to the previous series, Prophet, Priest, King. The second note in this story is coming from Michal. Now, Michal, who is this? Is she just some person who sits and looks at windows and critiques everyone? Is she just a rotten egg in the kingdom of Jerusalem, the troll of the holy city. Well, actually, she's married to David. It's his wife. That's close to home. Now, is she a bad person who just despite, just can't stand David, never liked him? No. If we go back to 1 Samuel 18.20, what does it say? It says this. This is when she first appears. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, was in love with David. She loved him. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. This is the young couple coming to Saul, and they are excited, and she thinks this guy's fantastic. So how have we gone from someone who loves to someone who despises? And note the word, it's not just she hated him, she despised him in his heart. That's like an element, you're hiding a despise in your heart. And I think Michal can't be written off as a bad egg. I think she can't be written off as a bad person. She's not just a simple troll, always negative. This is someone who is probably well-meaning. How do we know this? Because she goes to David 
And she probably, as often wives were in these court politics back then, was also a bit of an advisor. And she's like, seriously, like, if you're going to, like, it's fractious. Like, we could have a coup d'etat here. There could be a revolution. Like, there's guys out want to kill you. There's factions and the government. And you're going to rock around like an absolute pork chop, dancing with all your might. She says this. She basically says this, this is my biblical paraphrase. She's like, you are dancing like an idiot. You are undignified. And this is the frustration in her heart. So she actually is a well-meaning person who thinks she probably has the best in mind for David and for the project that God seems to be doing through them. Why? Why does the sight of David dancing with abandon seem to create within her? Well, I think whenever the presence comes, there's no neutral place. There's no... I'll see. When the presence comes, it creates a binary. There are people who, perhaps unsure like David, perhaps not sure what's going on, perhaps feeling like the last thing he wants to do in that moment is dance with all his might. And maybe he's scared. And maybe he's actually fearing assassination is probably a real possibility. But he dances with all his might as the ark comes in because he's trying to build a culture and set a prophetic example. And then you've got someone who unmeaningly, unwillingly perhaps, but something in their heart means that they end up resisting. When the presence comes, there's no neutral place. There's either welcoming and preparing for the presence or there's resisting. How does this well-meaning person though in Michal, how does she go from love to despising? Well, I think this is a clash in what her expectations of what a king should act like. This doesn't align with how she thought this was going to play out. She wanted David's leadership. She was advising David in his leadership. She probably was like, yeah, I'm I'm on the Yahweh God program here in Jerusalem. But what came against her and what resists the presence of God is that she had expectations of, of what a king should be, of what God should do. So Jerusalem then has this inner tension. Jerusalem is where the presence resides, but also contains a seed best described as a heart attitude which resists the presence, which wants to define God, define those who who are stepping into what God's doing, and define how God works through our own expectations. Love, but also despising. This is what the scriptures call double-mindedness. So this tension inside Jerusalem is captured by biblical scholar T.D. Alexander who says this, If Jerusalem was to reflect God's creation blueprint, then its citizens needed to be exceptionally holy. Yet as the biblical meta-story reveals, the inhabitants of Jerusalem proved to be no more righteous than those of other cities. They repeatedly fell below the standards of holiness necessary to live in the presence of God. And this double-mindedness, this unholiness, this this despising that exists in their heart comes to a dramatic head in the prophetic book of Ezekiel, where the prophet Ezekiel literally sees the presence depart from Jerusalem. God's like, I I can't dwell here anymore. I'm not welcome here. I can't dwell amongst double-minded people. These two things are like oil and water. They just don't go together. 
It says this in, in, in 10, chapter 10, 18 of Ezekiel. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple, stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings, rose from the ground, and they went, and the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. This is literally him describing what it looks like for the glory to lead the temple and lead Jerusalem. And so this is the background of the story of Palm Sunday. This is the drama that has gone before in the story of Jerusalem. This isn't just Jesus rocking up one day and, oh, let's see what happens. This is a dramatic point of a story that has been going for centuries around the presence of God and our ability to host the presence of God. And the people, like Michal, daughter of Saul, initially greet with love. They want to support the king. They lie down their cloaks. They put the cloak on the back of the colt. They shout Hosanna as he comes down from the Mount of Olives. But we have to ask the question, why only a few days later are probably some of these people cheering for Barabbas, a thief over Jesus? In the dramatic days that follow, we see the presence of God, the incarnation of God, Jesus Christ, accused, gossiped about, slandered, lied about, and eventually convicted in a sham trial before being literally spewed out of the city of Jerusalem onto a garbage heap and killed in the most brutal, unkosher manner. This is why Jesus, upon entering the city, despite the initial adulation of the crowd, weeps for Jerusalem. Verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept. This, what seems to be a triumphant moment, literally ends in tears. Why? Because of Jerusalem. And he says, if, even, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now is hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. Jesus is prophesying of what happens in 70 AD when the Roman general Vespasian comes in, is basically surrounds Jerusalem, destroys it, and destroys the temple. Josephus, the the Jewish historian of the time, says that Vespasian walks into the holiest of holies, where only the high priest could go. And you know what he finds in there? Nothing. No ark, no nothing. All the holy stuff had been lost. People had been going through this sham, rote, repeating of religious practice, and the presence no longer dwelt amongst them. And this is the temptation that often faces any group which calls itself the people of God, that sometimes we will be going through the motions and the presence is not present. But the good news is we have a pattern that we see in the Bible where God returns. History ends with a new Jerusalem coming from heaven. In the very city which, yes, will face Decimation in 70 AD. Only a few years before, a ragtag bunch, some who had scarpered when Jesus went to the cross, some like Thomas who doubted, but now have encountered the risen Jesus, find themselves in an upper room and they are praying with all their might. They've been up all night praying and they're praying because God said to wait 
and wait for power to come on them and for the presence to fall. And that's what happens. And what does the scripture say? It says the presence filled them. The Holy Spirit filled them. Temple language. We've now gone from creation as a temple, tabernacle, temple, stone and Jerusalem. But now the new temple is the people of God. Mini temples. Not in the center of Jerusalem where all the action's happening in an upper room. Someone's like rental somewhere. And so this is the good news, that God comes again to his people. And when things have gotten rote and when things seem in decline and when things seem like we're just going through the motions and you're slowly watching things just, just lose their life, that's precisely at the moment where God wants to pour out his presence again. And I think we're at a bit of those, one of those moments. It's not just us. It's everywhere. Each week, I continue to talk to people around here, around Oz, around the world. And someone described it, someone visited a couple of weeks ago from another city in Australia, and they were talking about it like, oh, you had something happen here? Like, well, I'm hearing something in my city. And she described it as spot fires. And I think there's spot fires. Like, has the presence poured out with immense power everywhere? No. But are we possibly in the moment before something like that happens? Maybe. So it's not up to us to decide how and when that happens. That's the sovereign will of God. But what it does, the story does for us, is it makes us ask the question, how do we prepare for his presence? How do we receive the king? And as God is on the move around the world, being attuned to what the Spirit of doing is part of life in the Spirit. William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, is quoted as saying this. If you would make the greatest success of your life, try to discover what God is doing in your time and fling yourself into the accomplishment of his purpose and will. And I love that word fling. As it reminds me of that afternoon in the U10 gym, of that guy in my U level flinging himself around like a madman dancing with all his might. And I don't think it's actually about dancing. The lesson here is not just dance like a mad person in worship. The real message here is perhaps prophetically throwing in to the next thing that God is doing with all your might. Throwing in, not because our works can make it happen, but actually because you are built with a priestly identity to work and care for the sanctuary where his presence comes. It's who you were born to be. That's your meta vocation behind everything that you do. And maybe this moment where God wants to return again in a new way to us and renew his church in a time when people are writing the church off in Oz. Maybe this is the great message of Palm Sunday. Are we willing to prepare for the king? But the warning is to not let your heart grow a bad seed. To not try and put it through the prism of our expectation. In Oz, there is a tremendous, and particularly in Melbourne, there is a tremendous cultural force 
that I call the yeah buts. Yeah, I can see how what you mean, but how do I know? Because I, I can give you 40,000 buts. I'm good at it. I know the stronghold often in our city of cynicism and yeah, but, and the reservedness. But I actually think the invitation at this moment for us to step in and actually prepare for the presence of God. This is our call. I think this is this moment. What does this look like? It's really simple. It's asking what would it look like and going from here and in prayer, going before the Lord and saying, Lord, how do I prepare for your presence in my home? How do I prepare for your, my, your presence in my relationships, in my family, in my workplace? How do we, as the people that make up Red Church, go from the usual setting, which we've all inherited, which is just go to church, how was the sermon? Yeah, worship was okay today. Did you get a coffee afterwards? Where'd you go for lunch? Nothing wrong with that stuff. But that is the extent of how we engage with what is to be the people of God. We're missing the point. I think God is building a new culture amongst us and what God is calling at this moment is people to take a prophetic David posture to actually say, I'm going to go all in on building a new culture where we actually as the people of God in Australia actually prepare for the presence of God to come. And it's something that we need to do with all our might. And there's no neutral place. There's no watch in the stands as to what happens. Watching in the stands will simply turn us into Michal, watching from the window while something grows in our heart, which ultimately resents what God is doing. How do we worship differently to receive his presence? How do we pray differently to receive his presence? How do we recalibrate our expectations to receive his presence? How do we take up our God-given identity as priests to receive his presence? God is inviting us into a posture change. God is asking us to choose. I think this is the attitude that God wants us to move into Holy Week as we remember his death upon the cross and his resurrection from the grave. So what I'd like to do now, just ask you all to stand with me as we pray. Holy Spirit, we recognize that you are present. We recognize that you want to Meet with us face to face. We recognize that sometimes we stay at a distance looking down from the window like we have. That sometimes we have love in our hearts but also other times resistance. But sometimes we have Hosanna on our lips, but other times we're heading in the opposite direction when it gets too hard. So Holy Spirit, we just simply pray, come.
We crave more of you. We crave more of your presence. We know that you want to renew us as a people, as a church, as individuals. So just we just want to just, in our spirit now, put down anything which is resisting you. We're going to put down expectations. We're going to put down fear. We're going to put down shame. We're going to put down cynicism, hard-heartedness, hurt, envy, jealousy, anything which is not of you. We want to lay down gossip, self-hatred, criticism. We lay this all down. And we just want to see you move, God. But we know that you're looking for a place to dwell and we want to pick up our priestly mantle and prepare a place for you. We want to host you. We want to offer hospitality to you. We want to serve you through our gifts, our time, our attention. Just through worship, which may even seemingly achieve no earthly purpose, but to you, it's a language of love. So we say yes. We choose the way of David. We choose to step in with all our might. We choose to fling ourselves into the thing that you're doing. And God, we don't want to hold anything back. We are here for you. Use us. We know there is a world that you want to fill with your presence. We know it's a world of nations which need you. Use us. Use us, we pray. So we're going to worship now. And I think as we worship, I think the Spirit is present and the Spirit wants to speak to our hearts and address those places we've been holding back. However you want to respond, I don't want to put parameters on that. If you want to kneel, if you just want to come before him in the quiet place of your heart, and pray that the spirit will move in you. Tonight, the renewal sessions, I just feel a sense I want to dig into this a bit more. But I think the moment he has for us now is simply to respond. So let's worship.